You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2023 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, featuring more than 90 sessions on farming and food systems, as well as mixers and meetups and a trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash conference. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we'll be talking about animal agriculture, my favorite topic. Um, my guest today is Christina Cook, uh, an associate editor at the food policy site Civil Eats, which if you don't subscribe to, you need to hurry right on over there and give them some money um, and subscribe because they are far and above, uh, in my opinion, one of the best um, publications out there that describes the food system and agriculture in a way that no other mainstream media bothers to do so. Um, Christina is uh, a freelance writer as well, um, who covers people, place, cultural phenomenon, travel, and outdoor adventure for magazines and newspapers across the country. She also teaches writing at the Center for Doc Documentary Studies at Duke University. Christina's work has been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times, TheAtlantic.com, Oxford American, The Guardian, Civil Eats, High Country News, Willamette Week, and Our State Magazine, among other places. This is the kind of person who makes me incredibly insecure and wish that I had lived my life in a different way. But anyway, welcome to the show, Christina. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, making your host feel inadequate is not the best way to start an interview, just so you know. <laughs> you should not feel inadequate. <laughs> no, I, I I actually do when I'm facing, so, especially since I looked at your photograph and deduced that you were possibly 15 and have accomplished all of that stuff. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> well, you're aging well. I'm assuming there's a portrait in the attic. So anyway, <laughs> let's let's get on to business. You uh, were the kickoff article in a series of five parts called Injured and Invisible um, that uh, targets um, people who work in the animal agriculture field. Uh, your piece is uh, Animal Agriculture is Dangerous Work. The people who do it have few protections. Um, this was published, by the way, for people who want to go back and see it on the Civil Elite site, November 14th in 2022. Um, and then the subsequent four sort of rolled out every week after that, pretty much. Um, was this, by the way, was this your brainchild to do this or was this an assignment that you accepted with pleasure? Well, it was kind of a combination. Like um, it, we received a tip in January 2021 um, that a worker had drowned in a manure pit at a dairy farm. Mm -hmm. And so just at discussing that among the editorial team at Civil Eats, we just observed that while there had been substantial reporting about industrial agriculture's impact on environment, communities and neighbors, um, rightly so. There had really right. been no reporting on just the worker side of things. And so we decided to start looking into it. <laughs> well, certainly not. Uh, you know, what's interesting is like I've covered the meat industry. I even wrote a book about the meat industry. <clears throat> so I've been doing this for a long time, 13 years. And so I've done a lot about workers' rights, but not so much about, um, first of all, the dairy industry, which you highlight in your first piece, um, but also about the, the sorts of accidents that befall workers in animal agriculture sort of across the board. So um, first of all, let's, let's, let's just quickly tell people what, 
what were the topics that you covered um, in the course of these five? I know you didn't write all five of the articles, but in the, in the course of the investigation, so people get a sense of, of what they can look forward to. Sure. Yeah. So the introductory piece, uh, the one that I wrote and that we'll mostly mm -hmm. talk about, uh, looks at the lack of protections for animal agriculture workers, right. focusing on on the job injuries and fatalities. Um, the second piece looks at um, worker respiratory illness. Um, mm. The third piece looks at how biogas incentives are spurring larger and larger farms without a corresponding increase in worker protections. Um, the fourth piece looks at how Tyson Foods is using its in-house healthcare system to avoid OSHA oversight. Right. And then the, the fifth piece looks kind of like at solutions and, and what might be done, what, what the path forward might be. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that would be great. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, once we once they stop buying off politicians, then we could actually consider that there might be some movement towards a right. better industry. But <clears throat> until politics gets out of it um, and these, you know, politicians allow them to run rampant across environmental and, and labor regulations, I don't I don't see any change happening in the in the near future. Um, so let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> your lead off piece. Um, you started by focusing it. I thought the way you structured the piece was excellent, by the way. It was really good, very well researched. Um, but you focused on one particular injured dairy worker. And people don't think of dairy work uh, as necessarily as dangerous as it is. But in fact, it is quite dangerous. And there are a lot of injuries in that sector. Um, I know this because, um, as I mentioned to you in my email, I, I interviewed Rebecca Fuentes um, about yeah. four or five years ago, uh, talking about a very similar case. Um, she works for the, what was the name of her organization? Center for Workers? Yeah, the Worker Something Center like of Central Worker New York. Worker Center of Central New York, right? And they focus on dairy on dairy workers because that, of course, is a big dairy uh, dairy community up there. Um, so, <clears throat> why don't you tell us um, what what's what happened to this guy, and um, and how you know, and how his story illustrates how OSHA is crippled and cannot, in fact, uh, examine injuries like his uh, for other for other workers who are injured. Yeah, so um, the person at the center of my story is named Lazaro Alvarez Andrade, and he immigrated from Mexico City back in 2013 um, at the age of 55 um, to help put his kids through college. Yeah, he had worked a whole career in transportation and logistics in Mexico um, before coming to the U.S. and finding very physical, different type of work in the yeah. dairy industry in New York. Um and he was working at a, a pretty small dairy farm. There were 80 milking cows um, and two other hired workers right. um, and was living at um, living in a house that was provided by the farmer about five minutes from the farm. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is after only a, a few months of working, um, he was leading cows into the milking parlor at the dairy one morning and um, a bull uh, who he hadn't even known was on the farm premises, um, charged him, knocked him into the metal rails of the cow beds, separating mm -hmm. the cow beds, where he hit his face. And so he hit the ground. His face was bleeding. He couldn't see out of his eye. There was intense pain. He was worried that he was going to lose his eye. Um, yeah, his injuries were quite significant. They were, yeah. He'd cracked two ribs. He'd broken two teeth. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So he remembers the farmer rushing to him. Um, the farmer was an older white man. Um, the farmer pulled the bull off, led him to a chair and said, wait here. Um, and then for two hours, <laughs> um, Lazaro sat there uh, outside the milking parlor bleeding while the farmer milked all the cows, 80. Um, <laughs> and then the farmer had his wife drive, drive Lazaro to the hospital um, where he was able to see a doctor and get treatment and get stitches in his face. Um, so then kind of what happened after that just reveals how precarious of a position he was in because two weeks later, he's back at the house where, um, he was living, he's having breakfast and the farmer appears in the doorway and just says, you don't have work here anymore. You need to, you need to leave and was pretty cold about it. Um, Mm -hmm. and so he, you know, he heard all that he only spoke he only speaks um, Spanish. And so he heard all this through his housemate who translated and the two of them decided that they just had to leave. They had no option. Um, He didn't have, Lazaro didn't have family in the U S he didn't have, he didn't speak the language. He was just at a severe and he was extremely injured. Um, And so his housemate got a job at another dairy and hid him for several months inside his worker provided housing um, and snuck food into him while he recovered. Um, wow, he couldn't... what a good guy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> incredibly good guy. Um, yeah, and so um, Lazaro couldn't afford to see specialists that the doctors ha- had recommended. Um, so in, he did seek, um, he, he reached out to Rebecca Fuentes, who we were just talking about at the Worker Center for Central of Central New York, who connected with him, an attorney to help him pursue workers' compensation. Yep. Um, and and the, um, they tried to get OSHA. They, Rebecca contacted OSHA to say, come investigate this incident. Um, but OSHA said, we cannot set foot on that farm. Right. Um, and that is because... <laughs> um, there, in 1976, six years after OSHA was formed, um, the um, there was a rider attached to its budget aimed at protecting small farms from what was seen as like onerous government oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, but it prohibits the agency from using federal funds to investigate injuries or deaths on farms with 10 or fewer non-family employees. Mm-hmm. Um so even if a worker is killed on a small farm, um, severely injured, OSHA cannot do a thing. Wow. Yes. So that's an astonishing. Yeah. Right. Very. Yeah. Very. Very convenient for the way agriculture is set up now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and we found in looking into it that that exempts ninety six percent of animal agriculture operations that hire workers in the U S. Um, from OSHA oversight because. of operations that hire workers have 10 or fewer employees. So um, potentially there are hundreds of of workers dying with zero oversight from the worker protection, the country's worker protection agency. Incredible. Let's, let's, let's dial it back for a second and talk about some of the most common injuries that befall workers in animal agriculture um, you know, both in dairies and feedlots and CAFOs and meat processing, because it's really, it's quite a range and, yeah. and, and very serious injuries, if not death. So 
run us through the list there because it's it's yeah. impressive. I mean, so there are the long term risks that come with this work of working basically on top of the untreated um, excrement of thousands of animals, Mm -hmm. um, uh, untreated fecal chemicals. So there's a lot of respiratory illness um, and as well as exposure to antibiotic resistant uh, bacteria, hormones, pathogens. But in in addition to that long-term stuff, um, there's the more acute stuff. So we were, we dug through OSHA's database um, and tallied that since, 2003, there are 13 people have drowned or asphyxiated in, in manure pits, which seems like an absolutely horrific way <laughs> to go. It's quick, though. It only takes about a minute and a half. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because, of the hydrogen, <laughs> because of the hydrogen sulfide. I mean, right. you are immediately poisoned. It's like basically like absorbing mustard gas or something. I mean, you know, you're very quick. Right. Uh, it's very quick when you're, <laughs> yeah. at least there's that small blessing. Anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in addition to that, like these workers are working with very large animals. Um, they're um, some, some are p- trapped or pinned and get injured. Some are yeah. attacked or gored or trampled by, you know, thousand pound cows or bulls. There's a lot of heavy machinery in the work. So people yeah. are frequently crushed or run over by that machinery or entangled in rotating equipment. There's a lot of amputations of fingers and toes and legs and arms um, when body parts or clothing catches in that machinery. Um, Workers have accidentally injected themselves with vaccines, um, drunk unmarked chemicals, um, and yeah, just sort of the whole gamut in addition to like the regular sprains and... um, Sure, yeah, slips, slips and falls and stuff like that. And also, exactly. I think it's worth pointing out, uh, you know, to people that the, the large majority of folks who work in these industries in dairy and in CAFOs and, and feedlots and so on are non-English speaking primarily, right? So, right. you know, as an immigrant population, a lot of times they're even scared to report an injury because they don't want to see what happened to Lazaro happen to them, which was that they lost their job. Right. Yep. Most of the workers are immigrants. Many are undocumented. Many don't speak English. And they are scared of being seen as a problem um, by speaking up about conditions because they are very aware of um, their replaceability, which is very unfortunate because it keeps them from feeling like they can advocate for for themselves and also keep their job and housing, which is often tied to the job. Absolutely. Right. You mentioned that labor camps tend to be uh, overseen. That's because labor camps typically house like 30 or 40 workers. I I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I, I actually interviewed a guy about the conditions in labor camps. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've really done a lot of deep diving into the meat industry. It's it's an ugly place to go. It really is just astonishing. So let's go back for a second to OSHA, which, by the way, for people who aren't familiar, is Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which was uh, established in 1970. And then the, the rider that you discussed about, you know, why... Um, Let's talk a little bit about the myth of the family farm here for a second, because that rider that you described a minute ago that was established in 1976 that exempts farms with 10 or less employees uh, who are non-family um, from any kind of federal oversight. Um, what, you know, how many actual family farms even exist at this point? Let's talk about, 
you know, the fact that, okay, maybe the guy that uh, Lazaro was working for is truly still a family farm. But in a lot of other cases, like poultry operations, hog operations, these are not family farms, people. <laughs> you know? right. These are large corporate entities uh, who managed to have, thanks to the miracles of CAFO engineering, uh, can manage 10,000 pigs or 50,000 birds with like three guys, right? Right. Yeah, so about 90% of the agricultural animals in the U.S. are raised um, indoors in facilities called concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs. So those house at least 1,000 cows, 2,500 hogs, or 125,000 chickens. Yeah. Um, And they are industrial operations when you get that many animals. (laughs) Um, But... The, the industry still paints them as, you know, as small family farms and um, that need protection from the big government oversight to be able to stay in business. And, um, and they use this. I mean, if you just think about the image of farming in the popular imagination, like in, in children's books, you see like a hardworking farmer, cows on the pasture, pigs in yeah. mud puddles. Um, and it's just not that way anymore. It's a very industrial operation. But the regulation has not caught up with the reality. So these very industrial operations are still being operated and regulated as, you know, agricultural. Right. As opposed to industrial, which is what they are. Right. Um, I want to I want to also make the corollary to this, which is that in did your research, you know, were you able to look at, um, say, of a farm does have 10 workers or fewer, and it is an actual family farm because they do exist. Um, do these, you know, if, if would it have a negative uh, financial impact on these smaller farms if they improve their safety regulations? Is there any, is there any, uh, you know, evidence to suggest that this would in fact put a farm out of business if they offered, you know, appropriate training, uh, safety, basic safety gear or whatever it takes to keep it, you know, to keep a worker safe. Do you, did you see anything like that would suggest that that was the case? So I, I did talk with, um, people who just talked about, um, I spoke with Craig Watts who, um, used to run a chicken operation. Sure. I know Craig. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he did say that just, Farmers are under so much pressure uh, because most of them are contracted with kind of big meat. They're under such pressure to, for fast production, for high profits, um, that they, you know, if they have a fan with a frayed cord, they might just use it instead of replacing it like they should. So there are costs associated with, um, you know, like replacing the tractor or, fencing in the bowl with a better fence, (laughs) um, Uh that, that are under the current way the industry is set up pretty hard for farmers to achieve. But Debbie Berkowitz, who is the former head of OSHA, who I spoke with for the story did point out that, you know, having a safer workplace pays because then farmers don't have to deal with the cost of working, workers getting sick or injured or killed. And, um, and she said that when OSHA did, step up inspections during her tenure, farmers were grateful and thanked them for, you know, showing them how to be safer. So, yeah. (laughs) So I do think, yeah, I do think that there is a cost associated with it. 
Um, and I know Milk with Dignity, um, a program in Vermont that asked farmers to, um, in the Ben and Jerry supply chain, to comply with a set of worker developed standards um, that um, do do wonders for <laughs> worker safety and health. Um, they do pay a premium to those farmers for the milk in order to help the farmers afford to make the changes that they need to make right. um, to have safer workplaces. But well, that seems like a very good model, actually. I mean, if you're, yes. if you're going to make a premium, uh, you know, an extra few cents per pound on your product because you've, you know, managed to train your workers in which chemicals are safe to mix and which aren't, you know, from something as simple as that. I mean, I remember working in a butcher shop in New York, which I did for quite a few years. And the guys were, you know, my boss was out of town and the guys were cleaning the walk-in and they mixed ammonia and, um, uh, I don't know, some other, you know, chemical, cleaning chemical, and it, and it created a poison gas. Yeah. And, they, and, you know, and they were, they got sort of chemical, bur- like they were only in there for a second with it, but still, I mean, it was a bit, it was kind of a big deal. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel and like it's a very lot, easy to happen. Right. And I think a lot of the, the changes that you can make are not super um, expensive, like, like just, you know, labeling, <laughs> requiring that right. your workers label bottles. Um, yes. Yeah. And put poison symbols on ones that are poisonous. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems like a pretty low cost initiative. Exactly. Um, but anyway, um, let's, let's talk for a second um, a little bit more about the sort of the number of, because it was interesting that you, you know, I was actually kind of confused by this. So your article pointed out that between 2011 and 2020, 85% of worker deaths in this sector were unreported. Well, so how did you find out? I mean, like, and do you think that's even under undercounted? So, um, yeah, we sought out the best numbers we could to get at the scope of um, underreporting. Um, and so we ended up comparing OSHA's fatality numbers with the numbers that were collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics during that same period. Uh-huh. Um, and OSHA's numbers are a subset of the Bureau BLS numbers. Uh-huh. So um, the BLS numbers collects fatality information. It's more of a statistical than a regulatory agency. So it's collecting for different right. purposes. Um, but it collects the numbers uh, of fatality information related to animal agriculture by the same categories as OSHA. So you can look up the number of um, fatalities in in the hog industry, in the poultry industry, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and BLS includes, is a little bit broader in scope. It includes, it, inclu- it contains the deaths not just of employees, which is OSHA, but also contract workers or ah. far- farmer family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and since it's not subject to the appropriations rider, it contains data from farms of all sizes and not just the big ones. Um, So what we found in comparing those two sets of numbers is that OSHA reported 149 animal agriculture worker deaths during those that 10 year period. Uh And and BLS reported 1006 um, related to animal agriculture during the same period. So granted, it was, you know, it was collecting more broadly, but just comparing 149 to 1006. Um, that's how we came to that 85% of animal right. agriculture deaths being not, not investigated by federal OSHA at that time. Very interesting. We're going to take a short break with Christina Cook. Uh, we'll be right back to talk more about Injured and Invisible. Stay tuned for this sponsor drop. Thank you. 
Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 90 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including Indigenous environmental scientist and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, the best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandra Katz, co-owners of Heritage Seed Company, True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. PASA's conference takes place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th and includes social networking events plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Okay, so we're back. Um, and we are going to now talk about one of my other favorite topics, which is consolidation in the animal agriculture industry, which has succeeded in, as you say in your article, diffusing risk, minimizing liability, and externalizing the negative impacts of their operations through contracting and Byzantine corporate structures. Can you talk sort of briefly, contracting folks, for many people who have listened to this program for a long time, they're they know this. Um, contracting is like a poultry farmer uh, who makes a deal with Tyson and he gets his birds. Tyson owns the birds and the contract worker owns the barns and uh, he gets paid a price per pound at the end of the or price per chicken, whatever it is. Um, but there are other Byzantine corporate structures which allow uh, large agricultural entities to pose as quote unquote small family farms. And I wanted you to sort of take us through a little bit of that. Yeah, so um, with, with that first vertical integration um, that you were mentioning, um, mm -hmm. just to show how that works uh, to enable these corporations to make use of that um, exemption. So, yeah. you know, Purdue or Tyson may have more than, you know, their their contract, the meat processors are are contracting with those independent farmers to grow the animals. The, the farmers then hire the laborers that they need to manage the animals. Um, right. and so then the corporation is distanced from the people doing the work and is usually able to fall beneath that 10 worker threshold for OSHA oversight. So, you know, while Purdue or Tyson may have more than 10 laborers doing their work within a given region because their laborers are divided out among independent farmers. Yeah. Purdue or Tyson does not have to worry about OSHA oversight of the workforce. Oh, man. So that's one point to make. That is very smooth. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, and then there we came across this other corporate structure um, called a, a folding LLC model. Um, and the biggest practitioner of this is the Illinois based Carthage system. It's one of the top pork producers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and this. So instead of a family farm, you have these investor funded operations made up of a bunch of management service firms that all come together. And rather than a farmer, you have a bunch of LLCs engaged in the work. So you have some that are training and managing the employees, some that are running labor camps to house the workers, some are conducting animal research, some are conducting veterinary services. And, um, and so they can easily, if there's any sort of threat, like a lawsuit or bankruptcy, one of the LLC, LLCs just folds without affecting the finances of the others. 
Oh, um, wow. No kidding. Yeah. So it kind of obscures who's in charge and makes it really hard for workers to complain. Yeah. Yeah. Much less bring a suit. Right. Because who do you sue? Right. Wow. <laughs> you don't know. Wow. Yeah. Christina, I've never heard of that. That's a yeah. new one for me. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed with that. That is some very slick lawyering stuff, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> and so the result, and so this is, but this is, I mean, to go back to the consolidation aspect of this, this is how, you know, the, the lack of competition in these sectors, and as my listeners know, it's like basically four big firms per category of, of animal, right? So <clears throat> Tyson, Purdue, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, and I don't know, Sanderson, for instance, in poultry. So they they are engaging in this like sort of nitty gritty LLCs, as well as the contracting that we all are so familiar with. This is like, or is this in addition to the contract? So you have the same contract work uh, model, but instead of having a big overlord like Tyson, you actually have all these little LLCs that are subsidiaries of Tyson. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So let's, let's talk for a minute about the status quo of this OSHA rider, which prevents, uh, investing federal oversight of, uh, quote unquote, small family farms. Um, who, who are the lobbying groups that are so invested in maintaining this status quo of not including animal agricultural workers in basic uh, workplace safety rules? Um, so you have, you know, each animal has its dedicated trade association, like the National mm -hmm. Pork Producers Council or the National Chicken Council or the National Cattlemen's Beef Council. Um, they are lobbying um, and they are spending a lot of money. They have very deep pockets. Like in 2021, the Pork Producers Council spent 2.2 million lobbying at the federal level. Um, Do we know who they are directing these dollars towards? Have you ever, I, mean, I know that's outside of this article, but just out of curiosity, did you look to see where a lot of this money is going in any specific way? Well, we looked at um, a, the lobbying database, and I think we just got the big numbers from that um, mm -hmm. and don't know exactly who individually it's going to. Because it would um, be interesting to know who is scuttling uh, these initiatives. Because I know that, for example, Rosa DeLauro has been quite active in trying to improve uh, safety regulations for ag workers and I'm sure there are other uh, con congressional representatives or senators who have been interested in doing the same thing. And yet uh, somehow it never uh, quite makes it to the floor for a vote. And so I'm just curious, like who these who are the guys, no doubt, in the ag states who are I mean, you know, like, could we investigate Chuck Grassley's finances, for example, <laughs> <laughs> to see how much money he's getting from the NPPC, National Pork Producers Council? Uh, for his re-election campaigns. I mean, that's the kind of stuff yeah. I'd be curious about. Yes, I know. And I think that would be good for a, another investigation. <laughs> well, I'm so good glad fodder. I was able to suggest that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it would be fascinating to see who is scuttling this uh, this type of really basic, I mean, these are very basic workplace regulations. Um, they are, yeah. Um, 
Um, and just to finish up who the ag lobby is, like there's also the yeah. Farm Bureau, which is very powerful. And then the individual corporations, Tyson, JBS, um, Smithfield, et cetera, they employ their own lobbyists. Um, but yes, as you as you mentioned, they're these the ag lobby is pushing against any sort of regulation for environmental stuff, working conditions. Yeah. And um, there have been multiple attempts to get this budget rider removed. Um, and they all fail. Like Delar, uh, Representative Delaro has repeatedly tried to remove the rider from the bill that funds OSHA, but right. it has gone gone through every time. And there have been other attempts to kind of get a little bit more regulation. Um, like in 2012, um, under the Obama administration, they tried to pass child labor laws to protect children from dying on farms. Um, and uh, just, and, you know, they they exempted children working on their own parents' farms, but it, it drew such criticism from the Farm Bureau and others who just said, this is going to be the end of the family farm. And this is kind of where this picture of agriculture is just about family farmers and, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that's what they cry every time. Um, yeah. And it just kills any sort of attempt to get greater worker protection, even if it's like for children, Amazing. You know, it's just, in, it is incredible to me, the power of the, of the quote, farm lobby, or the, I should say the agricultural industry lobby, because not only do they manage to, you know, thwart any sort of regulation around worker safety uh, and environmental policies, but they, but they have really like the, the fact that they are not uh, held subject to the same types of rules of every other industry in the nation in terms of, for example, their environmental uh, emissions is just astonishing to me. I mean, that speaks to the amount of power these people have. It's it's shocking. And I suppose that is also to be laid at the feet of the consolidation of the industry. Would you agree with that? Yes. And I, I think agricultural workers just have never had the same rights as other workers like mm -hmm. the rights that others take for granted um you know the you know the food system was built on a foundation of racism back to the enslaved the enslavement of african people stealing sure. of indigenous lands and so even um the the federal labor protections that went into place during the new deal the national labor relations act and the fair labor mm -hmm. standards act in the 30s, they gave workers across the U.S. the right to collectively bargain and to minimum wage and overtime pay, but they specifically exempted farm workers and domestic workers from that. So, right. when, um, and so it's just, you know, agricultural workers have just never had the same protections. And it's just, you know, with the consolidation of the industry um, and just the deep pockets that they have and their mm -hmm. commitment to not... Um, having any sort of monitoring or regulation, it's just compounded the issue. Yeah, right. And then add on top of that, the fact that we have failed, uh, you know, it to pass any sort of meaningful immigration reform, which means that so many of these workers are non, you know, undocumented, non-English speaking people who can be exploited and uh, basically tossed into the trash heap if anything goes wrong, you know, either because they just get fired like Lazaro or or they uh, the INS is invoked and they're deported. So right. I mean, it's really it's it's an it's a really disgusting aspect of this country. Right, um, it is that doesn't get any 
you know, any meaningful scrutiny by any meaningful uh, legislators or, or reform groups. I mean, I just find it incredible. Anyway, we, we're going to run out of time debating what everybody already knows. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you did make the point that some state OSHA officials uh, have picked up that investigator investigatory slack where where the federal OSHA investigators are not able to. Um, wh where is that happening? And and why doesn't every state do it? Is that a well, budget thing? Yeah. So in 20, 22 states, um, they there's a state plan OSHA that oversees ag agriculture rather than the federal OSHA. And within that, in 13 of those states, the state OSHA does not observe, observe the federal exemption and allows OSHA to investigate farms with 10 or fewer employees. And those 13 states are, um, you know, they include California, Washington, Oregon, Kentucky, Alaska, Tennessee, Virginia, um, Maryland. And so there, none of them are in kind of like the Midwestern states with the most CAFOs. Right. Um, or the South. There's no North Carolina. Right. Exactly. State OSHA. Oh, my God. Or Florida. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so 13 states, you know, they are allowed to use state dollars on mm -hmm. investigating small farms. But um, we don't know how frequent that would be also be if we don't know how frequently they do that. Mm -hmm. um, and how much of a difference that makes. Right. It's, I mean, right. I'm sure they're doing their best with a very limited amount of money. And then we were going to talk for a second, uh, cause we did, we do have time for this or I guess, um, there are some companies that make uh, a lot of noise like Smithfield about their worker safety programs. I know, I know you didn't delve very deeply into this, but uh, do you have any sense of whether or not those uh, worker safety, quote unquote, programs are uh, reasonably effective? Do you, was there, is there any place where you can measure um, whether they have fewer accidents or fewer illnesses or fewer whatever incidents um, that would deserve investigation? Right. So um, most of the ag lobby, we reached out to, you know, all of the ag lobby um, groups, including the companies asking for sure. comment on this story. Um, we only heard back from a few. Um, mm -hmm. And Smithfield did point to its um, voluntary industry safety program, the, right. the industry injury prevention system that they've implemented since 2018. Um, and I don't know how effective it actually is. It's a voluntary program. Smithfield track Smithfield tracks the numbers rather than an independent entity. Right. Um, so they can say whatever they want. Right. So it's, it's, and I did ask them for those numbers uh, to try to kind of see what they were doing and if it was making a difference according to them. And they did not uh, respond to that request. So um, I, I don't know. You got a lot of stonewalling in this. Uh, your your <laughs> article was was uh, like pretty much every paragraph was like we reached out to such and such and received no comment. Exactly, <laughs> there was a lot of that. <laughs> but I mean, that's you know part and parcel of the industry. I mean, it's part you know, of the problem. <laughs> it, it's part of the problem. I mean, they've been able to get away with uh, you know drawing an iron curtain around themselves. I mean, when I got, you know, access to a big beef processing plant in Colorado, this is like going back about seven or eight years, um, I, I basically shamed the, I was like, what are you hiding? 
Yeah. If you're if you have nothing to hide, why would you not allow me to come into this? You know, and who am I? I'm like nobody. I don't. I mean, I was writing, we're making this program for Heritage Radio Network that nobody had ever heard of at that time. So it was like talk about a benign, <laughs> you know, entity. <laughs> and and they finally did let me in. Um, but it was, you know, I was the first person in like 14 years or 22 years who had been on the inside of a beef packing plant. I mean, it was just, you know. And then two weeks later, they let somebody in from Oprah. Um, yeah you opened the doors I did and then I and then I'm sure the doors slammed right shut again you know right Uh (laughs) um anyway so they you know they they claim they have nothing to hide and yet they don't want anybody to see it they pass the ag gag laws and all that kind of stuff although mercifully that seems to be going away um but anyway Christina thank you very much this was a, a terrific article it's a great series people I highly highly recommend reading all five of these articles um maybe you'll come back and talk about the last one that you wrote as well yeah. Um, now that we know each other. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for the work that you do. And keep me in mind if you have other stories about animal ag that you want to blow up a little bit, uh, I'll do my best to help you out. Okay, so. great. Thank you so much for talking with me about this issue and helping get the word out to more people. It's, it's an issue that's not discussed a lot, um, the worker side of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I will send you a person that you might want to be talking to yourself, actually, after the show. But anyway, thanks for uh, tuning in, folks. And thanks, as always, to my sponsors. This is the end of this episode of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. By the way, Happy New Year, everyone. So long until next week. Bye bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.